All right, welcome everyone. Page 26 in your notebooks. And if you need a notebook, if you need some notes, we have some over here on the counter. We have tonight and then three more sessions together, so four total. Next week we don't meet because it's the day before Thanksgiving, so nothing going on here next Wednesday night, two weeks from tonight, and uh, three sessions after tonight. Page 26, and I'm going to go over a little bit of this, and then I've got a video for about 18 minutes, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back to the notes. But last week we saw the Radical uh, Reformation, and it's so named Radical because Radical means getting to the root. So the Radical Reformation was a group of people who believed that the Reformers did not go far enough in their reforms. And the Anabaptists were the first of the Radical Reformers. And then uh, we're going to see, starting tonight, that the Baptists came out of uh, the Anabaptists. They were the doctrinal forebears of the Baptists, but with some differences that we'll note tonight. So on page 26, Reformation versus Radical Reformation. The Reformation approach involved the Reformers' priorities and their, their pragmatism. Their priorities uh, were... Selected doctrinal reforms, and they emphasize these key doctrinal issues that you see listed there of justification by faith, and I should have said there by faith alone, because that word alone is extremely important. In parentheses there, you see the Latin phrase sola fide, so uh, sola means alone, and justification by faith is, is not enough. Uh, That doesn't state the biblical position precisely enough. The truth is Roman Catholicism believes in justification by faith. It's just not justification by faith alone. It's faith plus. And the Bible teaches faith plus nothing. Belief plus nothing in the work of, of Jesus results in justification before God. So that was uh, a, a hugely key issue for the reformers, justification by faith alone rather than all of the works system that had been built up over centuries uh, through the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Biblical authority, so sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, uh, are the final authority for faith and practice. And then the priesthood of the believer so that an individual can go directly to God because our high priest is Jesus and do not need to go through a human mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, I'm quoting, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is our high priest. We can go directly to the throne of God through him without the mediation of a human priest. Well, that had had profound effects then upon the church. Uh, Think about some of the things that would come out of this biblical authority. Now people are going to begin searching the scriptures to determine whether or not what they're told is actually in line with what the Bible Bible teaches. And this is a, a... profoundly different approach than saying the church tells you 
what the truth is, and you simply submit to that. That was the approach in Roman Catholicism, still is, but now it's look at the Bible and see what the Bible says about it. If it's justification by faith alone, now all of the works that are involved in the Roman Catholic system are done away with as necessary for salvation. If you have the priesthood of the believer, you no longer have to have the hierarchy of the church in order to go to God. So you can see just in those three things that it's getting at the foundations of the Roman Catholic system. So selected doctrinal reforms, but the most important doctrinal reforms are those kinds of issues right there. That Those were the reformers' priorities in terms of truth. But then they also uh, prioritized selected practices. In addition to reforming certain doctrines, the reformers endeavored to modify practices that were associated with those errors. So there's the celebration of the Mass and the errors that uh, come out of that. It's a works-oriented system. It's not justification by faith alone. So the death of Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago is not sufficient. That's one of the implications then that comes out of this works-oriented system, that Christ has not accomplished everything that needs to be done for your salvation. So that has to keep happening, that the work of Christ continues, including his sacrificial death continues. And that's what the Mass is. It's a re-crucifixion of Jesus every time it's done. Jesus is re-crucified every time the Mass is performed. Think about that. So when the priest holds up the, the host and he consecrates the host, because the priest is authorized by the church to do this, only a priest can do it, hold up the host, consecrates the host, and then the host, that wafer, becomes the body of Jesus. And then same thing with the cup becomes the blood of Jesus. And then in the the Mass, Jesus is being re-offered as a sacrifice every every time it's done. So the Mass was the most egregious of the errors and the practices of the church that needed to be reformed. And uh, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all of the reformers rejected the Roman Catholic idea of the Mass. Indulgences, we've talked about what those are. Those are pieces of paper that uh, give one a permit. That's what the word means in Latin, a permit. It gives one a permit reducing their time in purgatory. Uh, They rejected indulgences altogether because, again, it's not a works-oriented system. So notice how all of this is tied to, is tied to, to works. Uh, indulgences are tied to works because when you die, you haven't been good enough. The work of Jesus isn't enough. You haven't been good enough. So there's purgatory. In order to get out of purgatory, there are indulgences. So since the reformers believed in justification by faith alone, in the work of Christ, you're fully justified. Therefore, there's no place for something like purgatory. There's no need for something like purgatory. Your sins have been completely forgiven. You have the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification is, just as if I'd never sinned. You have the righteousness of Christ. 
And so there's no need for purgatory and thus no need for indulgences. And then related to biblical authority, one of the other practices that had to be done away with was the authority of the Pope, the papacy. And so the reformers uh, denied the authority of the Pope and in turn the hierarchy of the church. Why? Because sola scriptura. The Bible is the final authority. All right. So with all of that, with those priorities, both doctrinally and and in terms of practices, you see that the reformers were hitting on the most important stuff, thankfully. But there was some pragmatism as well. I have that on page 26 also. We've noted the hesitancy of the reformers to thoroughly reform the church, owing to their background in the Roman system. So do you see what I'm saying there? That all of them, Luther was a Roman Catholic monk, uh, Calvin was a Roman Catholic, so all of them were Roman Catholics. So they grew up in that. They're reforming the most important things, to be sure. They're changing the most important things. But there were certain things they just couldn't see their way clear to get rid of. And so there was some pragmatism. I say here the residue of the Roman church can be seen primarily in the structure of the major Protestant denominations, liturgical and political. Liturgical, as I said last week, means the way they worship. And political, by that I mean the way they're governed, the way it's structured. And as you look at what the reformers did, they kept the residue of the Roman church in some ways in the way they worshipped and in the way they were in the way they were governed. So with regard to communion, you know, we've talked about the difference that Luther had with Zwingli. Zwingli said that communion, the Lord's table, is a, a memorial, a remembrance of what Christ has done. Uh, that's what I believe. That's what our church believes about uh, the Lord's table, which, by the way, we'll be observing for the entirety of the 930 hour this coming Sunday. But Luther just could not see his way clear to, to say that. So he came up with consubstantiation. We talked about that. Uh, even Calvin, Calvin didn't do consubstantiation, but he called it the uh, spiritual presence of Christ in the uh, in the communion. Uh, so they 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 had to keep uh, coming out of their backgrounds. They felt like they had to keep uh, a kind of sacredness to the Lord's table that had to be found in Jesus being in, under, and with, in the words of Luther, or spiritually present in the elements, none of which is required by Scripture. So that was part of the pragmatism. Baptism, they had all been baptized as babies. Uh, They kept that. So Lutherans to this day, Presbyterians to this day, uh, infant infant baptism. Church-state relations, that's the way it had been for centuries, as we've documented in our class here. And the Reformers kept it that way. Luther kept it that way. Calvin's Geneva, uh, Swingley in Zurich, Switzerland. You know, it was the it was the city fathers, it was the city magistrates who determined and voted on what the religion of their geographic area was going to be, and the reformers went along with all of that. So the radical reformers said, "We've got to take this further." That bottom of page twenty six. Just as the reformers were zealous to reform the doctrine and practices associated with soteriology, that is, salvation, the Anabaptists 
focused with great intensity on the doctrine and practices associated with ecclesiology. That's the word for doctrine of the church. So the reformers are, again, they have the right priorities. Certainly salvation is the most important thing. And all the things related to that. And that was what they went after, and that's what they reformed, and reformed quite well. But then as it related to the church itself, there were further reforms that needed to be made, said the radicals. And my own view is that they were right about that. So what were their priorities? Well, their priorities related to uh, baptism and the Lord's table and separation of the church and state. These very things, notice, that I have listed under pragmatism for the reformers. So they were pragmatic about those things. They just kind of carried some of that baggage in with them from Roman Catholicism. The radicals said, no, we need to, we need to reform those things as well. So for baptism, it's believer's baptism. It's not infant baptism. For the Lord's table, it is a remembrance of what Christ has, has done. For church-state relations, the church is to be separate from the state. So these were their practices, as I say, believer's baptism, close communion, close communion. Uh, close communion uh, means that you had to be someone who was in voluntary relationship with a church, that you were a member of a church of like faith in order to participate in communion. Now, closed with a D, communion, means you have to be a member of this particular church. That's closed communion. Close communion is, as I say, you have to be someone, you might be at a different Anabaptist church than the one you normally go to, but you could participate as long as you were a member of a church of like faith. Open communion would be open to anyone whether or not they're a member of a a church or or not. So they practice close communion and then free church association. That is, there was no relationship between the church and the state. The state did not determine what the uh, religion and what the church denomination, the accepted church denomination of a particular area was going to be, but rather people gathered uh, as believers, they formed churches, and they freely associated with one another and with other congregations as they saw fit. Those were the radicals' practices. Now, that then carries over into the Baptist movement. We're going to see the Baptist movement before we get done today. But what I'd like to do now is take uh, this uh, 18 minutes or so and watch a couple of segments of our DVD about the church in England. In fact, if you look at page 28, the church in England, and then how out of England, uh, the, the English radicals took the English Reformation even further And then that's what laid the foundation for ultimately the Baptists to come along. So let's watch this now. In 1547, England's King Henry VIII dies, leaving the throne to his one surviving son, nine-year-old Edward VI. Henry VIII has left a rather muddled religious legacy when he dies. He has deconstructed many of the key elements of papal power in the church, its fiscal, its juridical powers. 
But nevertheless, particularly in the last few years of his reign, he's reasserted some major elements of conservative theology. Though still a boy, King Edward VI has been tutored by reform-minded theologians like the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. The young king and his advisers waste no time embracing changes that resemble Swingley and the Swiss reformers. Edward comes to power, and you have this great change where stained glass windows have to come out of the church. The statues that your great-great-grandparents donated to the church now have to be taken down. The altar, the stone altar, is now taken out, and we have to bring in a table. The priest now has a wife, which you as the congregation now need to also support. These changes are not received popularly among the regular people. King Edward also revises the Book of Common Prayer twice. The later edition supports a Calvinist spiritual presence view of the Eucharist. His government is on a mission to rapidly reform England. They look at the Old Testament for examples of God punishing kings and rulers who don't reform quickly enough. And that really explains why they're so urgent in their zealous changes. Their sense of urgency turns out to be prophetic. In 1553, King Edward VI dies at the young age of 15. Through a series of political moves, his sister Mary, once considered illegitimate, secures the throne. Mary has always rejected her father's break with Rome. For years, she and Henry were estranged as she refused to accept him as the head of the church. King Henry retaliated by refusing to let Mary see her mother Catherine even upon her deathbed. Mary Tudor, she was the eldest daughter of Catherine of Aragon. And she was a devout, some would say fanatical Catholic. And when Edward died, uh, it was her primary goal to turn England back into a Catholic nation. Because before that, under Edward VI, it had become quite distinctly a Protestant country. And so she's trying to reverse that uh, intentionally. As Queen, Mary now has the authority to restore what has been lost to her personally, culturally, and spiritually. The Queen moves carefully. In the month following her ascension, she issues a proclamation that she will not compel any of her Protestant subjects to become Catholic. The one man that is significant in the story is Thomas Cranmer, because Cranmer had been her father's advisor, had opened the door just a little bit to Protestants to gain some authority and some presence. Under Edward VI, Cranmer becomes the architect, the primary architect of bringing Protestantism to England. And when Mary comes to the throne, many of those Protestant bishops fled, but not Cranmer. Cranmer was in his early 70s, and he decided to stay. Mary's policy of tolerance quickly changes. Within months, she abolishes England's Protestant laws and comes to an agreement with Pope Julius III that returns the English church to Rome's authority. Once again, the people of England are expected to fall in line, for better or worse. Queen Mary and the Pope revive the Heresy Acts and begin executing Protestants. 
Within five years, 280 people burned at the stake, earning the Queen the nickname Bloody Mary. At first, Thomas Cranmer, who helped King Henry usher in the Reformation, defies the Queen. He said, I will stand for what I have said and I will die in what I have, have promoted for these years. I will defend my record. Well, she throws him into jail. He is treated very badly. He's there for well over a year. At one point, he is forced to watch the martyrdom of two of his closest friends, other bishops who had failed to flee. After a period of time, the elderly Cramer broke, and he signed a confession. In fact, he signed six confessions renouncing his Protestantism. Uh, he was a man who was broken in spirit. Normally, when a heretic recanted, their life was spared. That had been the tradition throughout the ages. But remember, Mary had a beef against Cranmer. And even though he recanted six times and signed his name six times to documents, uh, she insisted that he be put on trial and be found guilty and executed. So the great day comes, and the old man, Cranmer, is put on an elevated platform, and he is told, okay, give us your verbal confession that Protestantism is wrong. And the old man suddenly says, I repent of what I have said. I have feared for my life, and I want to stand tall and affirm Protestantism. And he said, because my right hand signed those documents, when I come to the flames, I will burn my right hand off first. They grabbed the old man, took him out to Broad Street in Oxford, and they lit the fires. And in front of everyone, they could see the old man, Tom Scrammer, put his hand up and burn his hand off. Protestantism began to spread even more because of the heroic death of Thomas Cranmer. Queen Mary is succeeding in returning England to its Catholic roots, but her reign is short-lived, lasting only five years. Upon her death, her half-sister, Queen Elizabeth I, takes the throne and once again reverses England's course. In 1558, at the age of 25, Elizabeth, the daughter of King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, is crowned Queen of England. She quickly restores England to Protestantism, though perhaps for a pragmatic reason. Under Catholic rule, as the daughter of the Protestant Berlin, Elizabeth is considered illegitimate. While Protestants welcome her with open arms, she's well aware that much of her kingdom does not. Elizabeth, in the early years of her reign, is relatively cautious about antagonizing Catholics. She has to be very careful about doing this uh, because her throne is insecure. Consider her not only heretical, but also illegitimate. And both 
English Catholics and European ones could potentially challenge her, her claim to the throne. While fully Protestant in her beliefs, Queen Elizabeth is comfortable with many customs of the Catholic Church. She keeps a Catholic crucifix and downplays the role of sermons. At the same time, she takes significant steps to convert the country back to Protestantism. In her first parliament in 1559, she reasserts her place as supreme ecclesiastically and jurisdictionally over the church. Elizabeth, though, chooses to be supreme governor rather than supreme head of the church. In 1563, the Anglican Church establishes 39 articles of faith that firmly rooted in the Reformation while pulling back from more radical views. The result is a unique mixture of Protestant doctrine that embraces many elements of traditional Catholic services. What's distinctive about the Church of England is its willingness to continue with the remains of a number of medieval Catholic ceremonies, such as using a ring when you get married, such as bowing in church at the name of Jesus, such as wearing the white surplice, such as making the sign of the cross in baptism. And so you have Protestant doctrine and theology, but really uh, uh, Roman Catholic-styled worship service. She felt like she, this was a middle way for her because many of her subjects were Catholics. And so she figured out that this may be the way to keep the, this, the country from civil war. And so it was a very astute political move. The Queen's approach seems to bridge some of the divide between Catholics and Protestants. It was actually a great relief among the people that this uh, compromise was able to, to happen. This compromise is unacceptable, however, to a new wave of reformers in England who call themselves the godly. They are known more commonly as the Puritans. Just as the reformers wanted merely to reform the church, not start from scratch, the Puritans wanted to purify the church. It hadn't gone far enough in clarifying its doctrine and faith. It had allowed uh, medieval superstitions to continue to thrive, and the church needed to be more purely reformed according to the word of God, the Puritans argued. In keeping with Calvin and Zwingli, the Puritans refused to accept as binding anything that is not proven from the pages of Scripture. Those items are agreed to be theologically unimportant or indifferent, but nevertheless, the idea that you would retain what the Puritans call Popish rags and Popish puddles is something which makes the church look imperfectly reformed and flawed in many people's eyes. The Puritans are also strongly against any political force controlling the church. Rather, they want the church's own officers to purify what is tainted. The Puritans and Queen Elizabeth are the dogs, and the tension is growing. The Puritans actually emerged during Elizabeth's reign, uh, principally uh, in opposition to her. And so she crushed them. She, she marginalized them and really was, was not particularly friendly to the Puritans. They used to do something called prophesyings. Pastors would come together on a weekly basis in these Bible studies, and they would talk about the Bible. 
they were to prepare to preach the following Sunday. And she told her archbishop to stop them because she feared they could become hubs of conspiracy. Though most Puritans want to reform the Church of England from within, others, known as separatists, want to leave it altogether. True to form, the Reformation continues to cause controversy across Europe, particularly over the relationship between church and state. That tension is about to reach a breaking point with unimaginable costs. There's... <clears throat> but one wonders, in the wake of all those lives being lost, was it worth it? In 1620, tired of being persecuted and desperate for religious freedom, a small group of Puritans and separatists set sail from the southern coast of England on a ship called the Mayflower. They came looking for freedom to pursue what they believed was the true established church. They are quickly followed by other religious groups that are seeking religious freedom, including the long-persecuted Anabaptists. European Anabaptists have a long tradition of knowing what it was to suffer, either martyrdom or to be sold as galley slaves or to be dispossessed from their land. The possibility of moving to North America, where the Penn's experiment in Pennsylvania gave an opportunity. One of the parts of that opportunity was that they were able to get on good land. So as they had the opportunity to come to North America, they were able to be quite successful as, as farmers working with agriculture here. Yet by now, the Reformation has a long tradition of persecuting those who believe differently. In New England, congregational Puritanism is the official and only religion in the mid-1600s. When a new sect of Protestants called the Quakers arrive, they are subjected to harsh and cruel punishments. They are flogged, whipped, and in some cases, have holes drilled through their tongues. Ironically, it's the King of England, Charles II, who ends the persecution in 1660 with an order known as the King's Missive. One of the ironies of history, uh, history is full of them, is that the same people uh, who came to the New World looking for freedom denied that same freedom to others. So we can be happy that sometime later the uh, Baptists in Virginia actually enunciated for the first time uh, what became the First Amendment to the Constitution. In 1791, the newly formed United States of America adopts an amendment to its Constitution, barring Congress from impeding the free exercise of any religion. It is a revolutionary moment ushered in by the Reformation. I think we have to say that the First Amendment, freedom of religion, was a natural evolution from the Reformation itself. All the reformers would have been appalled at the idea that you could have competing churches in one state. Many of their doctrines supported that. In this atmosphere of relative freedom, all of the major branches of the Reformation give birth to other denominations. So did you notice there at the end uh, where Michael Horton who, by the way, is a Presbyterian, 
But he said we can be thankful that the Baptists, did you guys notice that? That the Baptists uh, influenced the uh, First Amendment, giving religious freedom here. So I'll talk about that in a little bit because this now sets the stage on page 28 for Baptist beginnings, top of page 28. The Reformation left many unanswered questions in its wake. The nature of the church, relationship, which relationship should there be between the church and state? How does one become a member of either one? And so on. The radical reformers did much to answer these and other important questions. But as might be expected, they found themselves in a reactive rather than proactive posture. That is, they were just reacting to things that the reformers left undone rather than going all the way back to what scriptures say about everything. So as a result, much of their doctrine and practice can be attributed to reactions to then-current abuses of both the church and the state. Baptists began to carve out a distinctive identity during the first half of the 17th century, first half of the 1600s. While adopting many of the tenets of their radical predecessors, owing to different time and geography, they avoided their reactionary doctrines. This lesson will begin a look at the persons and issues involved in the development of a distinct Baptist identity that starts in England with the history that we just saw on the DVD, so I won't go over all of that, but you've got King Henry VIII and the English Reformation. During his reign in 1534, you see there in the middle of the page, the Act of Supremacy. That's a law that says that the king is supreme in religious matters. They adopt uh, the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the 39 articles that are a doctrinal statement. You saw Bloody Mary on the, on the DVD. She sought to make England Roman Catholic again, but she only lasted five years. Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, uh, had a very long reign, you see, of 40-some years. And she sought a middle ground. And the Elizabethan settlement, she had her own act of supremacy, reasserting the authority, uh, her authority to determine the religious character of the, the country, and an act of uniformity. And out of that, what you got in Anglicanism and still have in Anglicanism, the Church of England, is a blending of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. That was the Elizabethan settlement. And she did that, as you saw in the DVD, primarily because she had both in her country. She had just come out of the reign of Bloody Mary, who was Roman Catholic. You had so lots of Roman Catholics in the country. You had lots of Protestants in the country. And she, though Protestant herself, uh, tried to split the, uh, split the uh, difference. So you had the radicals within the English Reformation. And you saw those on the DVD, bottom of page 28. You have the Puritans. The Puritans contended that too many, quote, rags of popery were still in the Anglican Church, and they wanted to purify the Anglican Church in accordance with the Bible, which they accepted as the infallible rule of faith and life. But they wanted to stay in the Church of England. You have the separatists who wanted nothing to do with the state church. And so they wanted to have a separate church and were willing to separate them from the Church of England because it was a, a state church. So the separatists were so named, top of page 29, because of their rejection of the notion of a state church. 
Such opposition caused them to be persecuted in England. As a result, many of them went to Holland, where they came under Anabaptist influence. So you just you don't have to. You know, who cares about these names? I'll highlight a, a few of them as we go. In the notes that follow, I've got a bunch of names that you don't care about. You can keep this as a reference uh, for later if you ever can't get to sleep or something like that. <laughs> but uh, just follow the progression here, though. These are uh, English uh, Puritans who uh, want to separate from the state church. They're persecuted because of that. They go to Holland, and it's in Holland that they come under Anabaptist influence. We've seen who the Anabaptists are, radical reformers, believers' baptism, all of that. Those guys then are going to become the Baptists. So they're going to adopt in Holland some of the views of the Anabaptists, believers' baptism, but they're going to reject some of the views of the Anabaptists as well, like the pacifism that you can't be in the, in the military, that you can't take oaths. Uh, they don't believe that. And further, they're going to baptize by immersion. So it's not only believer's baptism, but it's baptism by immersion. And that is the distinctive contribution then of the Baptists to, uh, to the denominations that came out of the Reformation. And so from that you have the Baptists, uh, that came out of it, John Smith, Thomas Helwes. That's in, in Holland. After a time, the uh, many of them moved back to England. After it became safer for them to be back in England, many of them came back to England, including John Smith. So Baptists in, in England. Smith baptized himself, uh, and he baptized a number of people that agreed with him about what the church should be, that the church should be independent from the state, that only believers should be baptized, that those believers should be baptized by immersion, and moved uh, back to London, you see there, in the year 1611. The London Church of 1639 uh, had its members rebaptized, and so now in England you have the beginnings of Baptists in the first half of the 17th century, in the 1600s. Now, these two churches formed the roots, this church uh, that came out of Amsterdam and moved to London, and then another church in London of 1639. They both formed the roots of what would later be called the General and Particular Baptists, respectively. The General Baptists were Arminian. The Particular Baptists were Calvinists. All right, so do you remember a few weeks ago we looked at the difference between those? So an Arminian, an Arminian is someone who follows the teaching of a guy named Arminius. So be careful with this. It's not Armenian. <laughs> Armenians is, a, is an ethnicity. Arminian is named after this guy, Arminius. And people do this a lot of times. Hey, he's an Armenian. <laughs> but that's, as I say, an ethnic Armenia. There was an Armenian genocide about a hundred years ago, that uh, that this ethnicity was uh, befallen by. So it's Arminian with an I, not Armenian with an E. But they're followers of Arminius, and Arminius was as opposed to Calvin, and we saw those doctrinal differences. I won't repeat those right now. But you've got these two kinds of Baptists. 
You got the Arminian Baptists and you got the Calvinist Baptists. General and particular. Uh, general meaning that uh, Christ died for everybody. General. Particular meaning Christ died particularly for the the elect. So now you've got the beginnings of Baptists, and what are the distinctives of the Baptists? Bottom of page 29. While having much doctrinal unity with their Anabaptist and Separatist predecessors, the Baptist parted company with them over several issues. Although in agreement with the Separatists that the church should be free from state interference, the Separatists did not hold to believers' baptism. While the Anabaptists held to both believers' baptism and separation of church and state, they had other doctrinal distinctives like the pacifism, prohibition of oaths, and so on, that the Baptists could not harmonize with Scripture. And neither group, the Separatists or the Anabaptists, practiced immersion. Therefore, the Baptists sought to modify doctrine further than the radicals in order to restore the doctrines of the New Testament church. The result of that is the development of the doctrinal distinctives of the people called Baptists. So you've got these two groups. You've got the General Baptists and you've got the, in England, first half of the 1600s, the General Baptists and the Particular Baptists. The General Baptists. It's significant that doctrinal standards soon disappeared among the General Baptists so that there was nothing to prevent them from drifting into error during this period when adverse winds were blowing, should be were blowing. In contrast to this, the particular Baptists were doctrinally minded. Both groups had published confessions, but the general Baptists were so weak doctrinally that as early as 1697, they could not even commit the churches to a clear statement on the Trinity. Whereupon seven churches withdrew from the General Baptist Association. That's a quote from Errol Halsey's book on on Baptists. So that's the General Baptist, and that was the drift that these Arminian Baptists were going. So now, over the next few pages, I've just got some questions to keep you awake and to uh, cause you to think a little bit and make some doctrinal connections as best we can. So here's a few of them. Why does Arminianism... And this is the this is the case historically. Arminianism tends toward liberalism. It tends toward the denial eventually of more and more truths, the erosion of doctrinal truth. Why does Arminianism do that? Why does it tend to do that? Yes. So it depends more on like human reasoning. Oh, this guy. I mean, do we have the young people or what? Uh, I mean, you guys are great. No, Clay, that's that's great, man. It's it's man centered. Arminianism is man centered. Um, it's 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 all about your choice. You're the one who makes. You're the determining factor as to whether or not you go to heaven. God's not the the determining factor. You are, and so it is man centered. Uh, at its foundation. Well, you know, this is the way doctrinal error works, friends. There's the error, and you may have everything else right. But over time, it's like, it's been likened to, you know, shooting an arrow at a target. And, you know, if the target's 100 yards away, and you're just off by a centimeter, at this point, it doesn't look like much. But by the time you get 100 yards out, you're several yards off, right? Right? And over time, that's what happens with doctrinal error as as well. 
So Arminianism is man-centered. Uh, well said. Whatever feels right. You know what I mean? To who? have nothing to base it off of. To who? Yeah, to, Before I to the person. Before I that's what I used to be. Sure. Yeah, well, um, yeah. Uh, okay, I, want, I can beat on the Arminians <laughs> some more with that. You're giving me ammo. I won't, I won't do it. Okay, so why does Arminianism tend that, tend that way? Look, the reason I've got these questions in here is because you take a Reformation class, you don't want to come away with just some names and dates. And, you know, it was pretty interesting. You want to be able to say, okay, we don't want to repeat the errors. That's why you learn history. It's one of the reasons you learn history, so that you don't repeat the errors of history. So you want to try to learn from that. So why does Arminianism tend toward liberalism? It's man-centered. Why are the Anabaptists and the General Baptists Arminian? That's a harder, that's a harder one, but uh, they have something in, in common. And I think it's this. And, and this is, this is a, an issue for us in our day in, in the church. That we believe in, both of them believe in a free state church. Free from the state church. Baptists certainly believe in that because, as I say, as they said, Baptists uh, were uh, in large part responsible for the separation of church and state that we have in America. So Baptists are that too, including particular Baptists. But because of the man-centered uh, approach that the Anabaptists and the General Baptists take, in their separation of the church from the state, in the autonomy, within the autonomy of the church, now autonomy means self-governing. So every church governs itself. You don't have a hierarchy telling the church what to do. Each church governs itself. Okay, so far so good, so far biblical. But within that, because of the man-centered mentality, the church that runs itself and doesn't have a hierarchy is also run by everybody. That is, it's a, it's a democracy, a pure democracy. That's not so good. In fact, that's not so biblical. Because the biblical model is there really is such a thing as an authority structure. There is an authority structure within the church. There are offices within the church. But this egalitarianism within many, uh, within the Anabaptist churches for sure, uh, many Arminian churches, this egalitarianism shows up in a lot of ways. If you go into an Anabaptist meeting, uh, there will not be someone who's designated to preach. It's whoever feels the spirit gets up and preaches. That's how democratic it is. Now, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. The Pentecostal church I grew up in inherited this kind of this kind of mentality. It was just whoever wanted to do whatever. So, uh, the reason that they're man-centered is because they're focused on this democratic approach within their autonomy, which appeals to the man-centeredness of Arminianism. So I'm just trying to encourage you to, to make those connections. And then another question here is, is there something inherent in Baptist ecclesiology that tends towards schism, that is division? 
Baptist ecclesiology, that is ecclesiology, church life, Baptist church life, is there something inherent within it? Uh, you can, you might be able to answer that one. Um, Go ahead, Clay. Let's let <laughs> yeah, Clay. No, okay. Well, the answer to that is yeah, yes, and and that's why we have to be extremely careful about our autonomy. Because with this independence comes with this freedom from any kind of a state church or any kind of a hierarchy outside of the church, then it means anybody can go start a church. So you get ticked off, go start your own church. Get your own soapbox. Start a church in your living room. Invite your friends. Come up with some weird doctrine. And you've got your own church. I know people who do this. I know someone doing it right now. You know, there's something that I got a hold of because I was watching a video, I was watching, you know, reading on the internet, and the church I'm going to doesn't teach that. I think it's cool. We need a church that teaches that. Let's start one. So you get people starting churches all over the place. You wonder why there are so many churches. I think it was Jim last week, Jim Mader, asking, you know, why can't they just get their act together, man, for heaven's sake? But but there is this freedom. I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be. I'm very thankful that we have a First Amendment. I'm very thankful that people have the freedom to do that. But because you're free to do it doesn't mean you should do it. Doesn't mean it's a good idea. You know, when this person goes and starts this church... Who ordained that person? But notice the the radical egalitarianism, it's all flat. You don't have anybody that has to lay hands on you and confer on you that yes, you're a pastor. Yes, you know what you're talking about. Yes, you can teach God's people. You don't have anybody to do that. So anybody can go and proclaim themselves a pastor and start their own church. But the Bible that we say we believe actually has some hierarchy within the church, one. And it does have qualifications for a pastor. And those qualifications are supposed to be recognized, not just by you proclaiming yourself to be qualified. It's not unilateral. Other people recognize that. And there's the laying on of hands. That's a scriptural idea. That hands are laid on the person to confer, to show as a visible symbol that this person has been commissioned for this work. You have it in the first deacons in the church in Acts chapter 6. And you have it with, with pastors in First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22. First Timothy 5.22, Paul says to Timothy, do not lay hands on anyone quickly. That is until they're ready. So... Is there something inherent in Baptist ecclesiology? Yeah, it's the autonomy of the church. Now, that's a good thing. It's a right thing. But it can be a dangerous thing if it's used in this democratic, egalitarian way so that everyone does what they feel like, both within the church and then if you don't like it, go start your own church. I remember years ago I was talking to a guy Baptist guy, good guy. And he and some friends, you know, they were they were going to a particular church and they didn't like some things that were going on. 
And he's telling me that he said to one of the friends, quote, this has just stayed with me for all of these years, quote, I just kind of feel like we ought to start our own church. I just kind of feel like we ought to start our own church. Well, the church, it, it just seems to me that in Scripture, the church is more important than somebody just kind of feeling like that a bunch of us ought to get together and start our own church. But that's a lot of what you have today. All right, so I just want you to think about those things because here's the here's the history. It's a good history. It's uh, and and the, and the Baptist movement came out of the things we've seen, and for good reasons, and for good doctrinal reasons, the best doctrinal reasons. But you have to see the dangers in it as well. All right, the particular Baptists. There were leaders of the particular Baptist. That is the Calvinist Baptist cause in England. Three guys whose names start with K. John Bunyan. Some of you know that name, John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was a Baptist. He was imprisoned because he was preaching without a license from the Church of England. Uh, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very sad tale. He, um, he used to uh, make like doilies in his prison cell that he would then hand through the bars outside to his daughter as a way to support his daughter while he was in prison, and she would go and sell these. So Bunyan was was in prison, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. John Gill was a radical um, Calvinist. I say radical Calvinist, hyper-Calvinist. Do you see that down at the bottom there, hyper-Calvinist? So here's what a hyper-Calvinist is. A hyper-Calvinist is someone who says... God is sovereign. God controls everything. God has determined everything that's going to happen. I have that alarm set to remind me to say, um, we need some more food for Sunday's baptism. <laughs> we need for the for the dinner. So we need uh, four more cheesy potatoes, I'm told. And one more salad. You are? So you're going to do a cheesy potato? All right. Good for you. Do I hear another? <laughs> So to register, what's that? That is part of that is a doctrinal distinctive. I got that casserole. You got to know how to make a casserole to be a member of our church. So next door here, you can actually register online to uh, make the cheesy potato or bring the salad. Okay, so please do that if you're able to. Okay, all right. So John Gill's a hyper Calvinist. What's a hyper Calvinist? Not only is God decreed everything that's going to happen, He's sovereign. That's all. Tr- that's true. Nothing happens outside of God's control. But a hyper-Calvinist then says, God does not need means. God does not, let me take that back. God does not need means, but God doesn't use means in order to accomplish his work. That's a hyper-Calvinist. So a hyper-Calvinist's approach would be, God's already determined who's going to be saved. So you don't need to worry about evangelizing. They'll get saved anyway. Uh, William Carey, whose name we'll see in a bit, a Baptist, a missionary. He went to India, but as he was trying to get support for his work to go to India, he's going to these Baptist churches and he's saying, will you support me in this work to go bring the gospel to the Indian people? And he's told, Mr. Carey, God will save the Indian people without you or me. 
That's a hyper-Calvinist approach. Now, there aren't many hyper-Calvinists out there, um, but John Gill was, was one. Okay, So top of page 31, how does hyper-Calvinism manifest itself? I've already told you that. In the denial of means. See, but a, a proper approach is God has determined the ends. That is, God has determined. A sovereign God has determined what's going to happen. None of how things turn out takes God by surprise. That's why there's a book of Revelation in your Bible. God's already written the last word on this. He's already told us how it's going to turn out. How does he know how it's going to turn out? Because <laughs> he's got it all under control. But he's not only determined the ends, he's determined the means as well. He's determined the means by which those ends will, will happen. Evangelism, preaching, mission activity are all part of those, those means. So that's how it manifests itself in a denial of, of means. But how does one who believes the doctrines of grace protect against that? How does one who is a Calvinist to that? How does a good guy... There's the good guy and the bad guy. Okay, there's the Arminians and there's the Calvinists. If you're one of the good guys, how do you protect against becoming a hyper-Calvinist? Right. Well, Christ said, go and make disciples. I mean, obedience would be a good one. You know? Christ said, do this, so so do it. Yeah. Is, I don't remember the exact verse, but Paul says in Romans, doesn't he, that how will they hear? No, that's good. Nobody's yeah. been sent. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, in Romans 10, how will they hear except they have a preacher? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, right? So, yeah, so one, one of the things that uh, we need to do is really, like Sharon says, focus on obedience. And even when something doesn't make sense to you in your obedience, obey anyway. Obey even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if it doesn't fit within your system. If God says to do it, then be radically submitted to God so that you do it anyway. I mean, think about Abraham. God tells Abraham, hey, I want you to take your son up on the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. Well, does that make any sense? I mean, remember the story about how long we waited to get this son? God performed a miracle. You know, to have a 90-year-old woman have this child. And now I want you to go and sacrifice. I mean, Abraham easily can go, oh, that doesn't make any sense. But Abraham is the father of the faithful precisely because he was radically committed to obedience. He believed God. He trusted God, knows what he's doing. And if God says to do it, then, then I do it. And so he was willing to do it. And we know the story, God spared Isaac and all of that. So the major way to avoid hyper-Calvinism is to say, I'm going to be radically committed to submitting to what God says to do, no matter what, even when it doesn't comport with what I think, and even if it doesn't comport, and certainly if it doesn't comport with what I like. You know, if you, if you and your spouse, if you and your spouse don't like each other, you're still supposed to be spouses. You're still supposed to stay married. Why? Because God says so. That's why. You don't have an escape hatch because you don't like it. But, you know, we, 
we, we find exceptions to things that don't make sense to us or things that we don't like. So I was just going to say, when Jesus said uh, the harvest is plenty and laborers are few, that uh, you know we kind of think of ourselves as har- harvesters. Yes, he, he's calling, but we're harvesters. Yes, amen. Amen. Absolutely, yeah, Jesus said that. So pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into his, his harvest. That's what he says. Notice, he doesn't even say pray for the harvest. If you notice what Jesus says to pray for, he says pray for people that will go into the harvest. It's not pray that these people will be saved. It's pray that there'll be people who will go and give the message. Pray that. And then God uses that to then save people. Yes. Um, I can see why some people find it easier to go into the hyper-Calvinism because if, if, you're, if you're sharing the gospel with someone as a Calvinist, as what we believe, and... And you're telling them to repent from their sins and, you know, just sharing the whole thing. Can you um, promise if they do this, see, since God already knows from before the foundation of the world who his elect are, and we don't know if this person is elect or not, how can we promise them that if they do this, that they will have eternal life, that this is the good news, that this is what Jesus has for you. Mm-hmm. How can you do that when you don't know? Well, here's how. Um, and I'll, I'll answer that, and we're two minutes past. I'm so sorry. If you guys need, oh, no, no. No, you're good. So if any of you need to walk out, it's all good. But here's the, uh, here's the thing. If somebody wants to do that, now, let me condition what I'm going to say. Somebody wants to do that. They want to confess they want to repent. They want to receive Jesus. Somebody wants to do that. Now, let me condition it this way. I'm assuming that you've made a clear and full presentation of Christ. That you haven't just said, hey, want to go to heaven? <laughs> By the way, do you know anybody who says no to that? So see, your gospel presentation has to be clear enough that it can be rejected. If your gospel presentation is such that nobody would reject it, you haven't given the gospel. So you don't do the, what was that, Dallas Home? I'm old. Remember that guy, Dallas Home? Yes, I do. Anybody here want to live forever? No. Say, I do. Remember that song? No. You don't. (laughs) That was a song. Anybody here? That was a really popular song. It was like a number one. Yeah, you remember, Jerry. Anybody here want to live forever? Say, I do. Well, who, who wants to live forever? Anybody ever said no to that? Everybody says yes to that. So if you've given a full gospel presentation that says, look, Christ died for your sin, and here's what sin is. Sin is you going your own way rather than God's way. But now you're going to, I don't know what my excuse for this one is. (laughs) That's the same one. I just hit snooze. (laughs) Yeah. And I probably just hit snooze again, but we'll be done before the 10 minutes. So... Uh, And sin is you going your own way rather than God's way. So that means you come to Jesus who has died for your sin. And now you're going to live in a different way. This Jesus who died for your sin is your Savior and he's your Lord. And you're going to bow your life before him and live for him. Now, do you want to do that? Okay, now if the person says, yeah, yes, I want to do that. I want to give my life to, to Jesus. Guess what that means? That means that because Calvin's 
unlike an Arminius, Arminian, Calvinist says this person is dead. They don't have spiritual interest. But if they've got spiritual interest to do that, guess what that's evidence of? They're elect. The Holy Spirit's working on that person's heart. So how do I know? I know because they respond. Assuming that I've given a clear presentation of the gospel. Yeah. So that's the way you... You know, okay. keep from worrying about that. Well, how do I know that they really got saved? Well, the, you know, because I, I present it clearly. And if you present it clearly, only people who really want it say say yes to it. Mm-hmm. If you present some cheap version, hey, do you just want to avoid going to hell and go to heaven? Well, yeah, everybody wants that. Mm-hmm. That's why we. That's one of the reasons we've got so many false professors running around in the church today. Because that was the gospel they were presented with. That's the gospel, the false gospel that they responded to. But they're not truly born again. But they're in the church. But they're not born again. All right, good question. Thank you. We'll pick it up there next week.